Welcome to Breaking the Couch, a weekly conversation demystifying what happens in and behind the therapy scene to support your healing journey. We're your hosts. I'm Dr. Doughton, a licensed clinical professional counselor, a certified school psychologist, and a trauma specialist with Playfully Psyched. And I'm Dr. Joe Harchi with Soft Heart Psychology, a licensed clinical psychologist. We're here aiming to provide you with mental health tools to address the cycle of generational trauma across the age span from infancy and childhood to adulthood. For more information, visit our Instagram page at Breaking the Couch or our website, breakingthecouch.com. While we hope you love listening to and learning from our podcast, it's not a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. So today, I think it'd be really, really great if we talked about um, what happens or what it looks like when people really want to engage in trauma therapy or trauma treatment, trauma intervention, but they're still in a traumatizing situation or they're still with a partner that has harmed them or something along those lines. One of the things that comes to mind for me is that, so with hardcore traditional trauma intervention, right? What we learn is that the person needs to be out of the traumatic situation in order to do in order for the intervention to be helpful. That was like, I think the core of what they taught us years ago, what I learned years ago, because the idea is that you're, you know, rooting the person back into safety, right? And helping them um, realize that their environment is now safe, that their body is safe, their body's container, all these different things. But that's not quite true if they're still in a traumatized situation or they're still with a person that has abused them. Now, this topic, though, came up several times when I worked in um, different agencies for like Child Protective Services or mm-hmm. um, Department of Child and Family Services, those departments, where we're thinking about a parent or caregiver or family member has abused the child. And so part of like court order support and help is trauma intervention for the child and the family. And so we're doing these intensive trauma interventions with this child and or family, but the parent or caregiver has visitation rights, right? Mm -hmm. And so us trying to figure out how to navigate the fact that, well, the person that harmed them is their trigger, right? And they're in there, they have visitation with them or they see them. And one of the things that we found that what could be helpful is when that other person would actually engage in treatment, right? So they could become viewed as a safer person. Mm -hmm. Um, And the hard part is that, again, sometimes the abuser wouldn't want to engage in the treatment. They just wanted to do visitation. And so, you know, we had to navigate that through the courts. But I think people can understand why that would be really challenging to start to believe that you're safe when the person, place, or thing that harmed you is right in front of you. Um, and it's like, well, am I really safe? Are you gaslighting me? Are you lying? What's happening here? Mm-hmm. No? Yeah. yeah, that's some of the same things that I was thinking of was that old rule um, that a lot of us have been taught that we don't provide therapy and we don't hold that space until I mean, they don't say we withhold space, but they say that we don't have that therapeutic um, channel when the person's still kind of in their suffering. Um, and, and I'm thinking the same thing, like kind of when they would be still in an IPV, intimate partner violence, or a DV type of 
situation that we would wait until they are um, removed from that person or that relationship and feeling safe and able to like open up and talk. And I think the same thing. I think that there's a lot of, uh, you know, complexities and, um, you know, I'll just go ahead and say that I, I believe in the way that I practice is that, you know, when, when patients will ask me, you know, Hey, um, let's say for example, I'm trying to co-parent with this person. Um, and you know, they're saying these activating things, Mm -hmm. uh, to the child and it's not necessarily physical abuse and it is emotional abuse, right? What do I do? How do I, and and I'm not going to say, don't come to me because you're still around this person. Mm -hmm. You know, you've still got 10 more years or 15 more years or whatever with, with this person. And, um, you know, I do believe that. And for some folks, I do believe that therapy can actually open a channel that they might not have been able to do because they're isolated from their communities or they're, um, you know, feeling like they can't talk to certain family members. Mm-hmm. We've seen that too. Mm-hmm. So I've had the the honor of working with some folks while they got out of something that was toxic or negative. And that's felt really great because then you see them sort of open up out of that isolation and get their connections and, and then, yeah, access, a I would say like a different type of therapy mm-hmm. once they're away from the toxicity. Um, but, you know, I haven't necessarily done that with somebody who's in a physically abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see how I couldn't though. I think that somebody could still access therapy in those situations to help them kind of have that therapeutic connection and and rapport and alliance and and hopefully open that channel mm-hmm. of hey okay let me tell you this stuff if i can't tell my friend or family members or whatever yeah you what you said just made me think of like somewhat the embedded hypocrisy in our field talks a lot about the therapeutic alliance and the power of it and like we know you know from from studies that the therapeutic alliance is like the biggest change agent most of the time in therapy, meaning uh, it's not always the, you know, the the methodology or the intervention that you choose, whether it's EMDR or, you know, CBT or whatever. It's not always the actual intervention. It's the relationship you have with the therapist. So how do we say that therapeutic alliance is one of the biggest change agents and then be like, oh, but if you're in trauma situation, the therapeutic alliance doesn't matter or isn't going to help you, you, you mm-hmm. you're, so you're going to stay mm-hmm. in danger and then you can come to therapy later. So I think it's a very interesting conundrum that they kind of set up with that initial rule. And I also, you know, think about where the basis of that rule comes from, because it's really idealized, right? Like it's not realistic in so many ways. I mean, think about the fact that, you know, and I hate to always bring this back to race, but you know, things come back to race, things come back to mm-hmm. our discriminations, mm-hmm. our, um, the microaggressions, all those things, you know, it's, it would be like telling a black person that you can't heal at all. There's no healing possible while racism still exists. So then you're telling us that we stay damaged, traumatized, hurt, whatever for our life. Wow. Right. Yeah. 
that mm-hmm. is ridiculous. Like that's not, that's not true. And I love that you're bringing this in. Yeah. The therapeutic alliance or the relationship that you could potentially build within um, trauma intervention could be the method of change that the person needs to figure out how to get themselves safe, how to get out of that situation um, or give them, re- figure out resources to make, make the situation a little bit better. And then, right, the, the relationship or the intervention can change a bit to be more um, reflective and healing from that perspective. I also want to think about, you know, we can only do within the hour of therapy, that 50-minute session usually, um, what's within that space, right? Like we aren't... Um, yeah in the people in their lives 24 seven. We're not like, we're not going in with capes and like, you know, battling or whatever they're battling in their homes. Right. And so I do think that there's still power in, you know, building in mindfulness building in Mm -hmm. some of the trauma recovery strategies, emotion regulation strategies to get you through those moments of, um, of fear and harm in your daily life, right? Um, because they're, you know, the brain is a beautiful thing. And we just, we also know about disassociation to so like that out of body experience that people can have when they're experiencing something really scary or traumatic. And it's a protective factor, right? And so, and we wanted, we, typically want that to decrease over time when you're in recovery and healing from trauma. But when you're, experiencing it's like you get to choose like oh i'm going to dissociate at least it's not initially you can build that as a skill if you need it um but i just think that it's so important for people to understand that you can still have some level of healing even if you're still in a situation that is harmful um you know your your brain your mind your body are really powerful and can create inner strength and protection while you're kind of battling through hard things. Absolutely. And I love that you bring up how our field perpetually sort of has this like, oh, come to us when you are in this ideal situation. But you're right. Like, why does, I'm not gonna say why, but our field does this thing of Uh, excluding folks, right? So don't come to us if you're in the middle of your racism and other traumas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why does our, okay, not why, our field does that over and over and over again. And that excluding people um, is, like you said, um, hypocritical and like, uh, I think an abuse, another another abuse, another aggression um, to say, hey, you know, we're going to have unconditional positive regard except if you're using or except Mm -hmm. if you're in a uh, situation that's, you know, toxic, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, So uh, that's that's a a very unfortunate part of mental health. And I actually love working with folks where they've been to a few therapists and I'm kind of like one of their last stops. Like, hey, Mm -hmm. I'm going to try this again because these other therapists have have not felt like um, they were really doing that whole thing of bringing me in. They actually mm-hmm. felt like they were asking me to leave until I'm ready. And, and they're like, I am ready. I'm looking for therapy. Mm-hmm. So um, those are actually some of my favorite uh, stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that, that, you know, 
brings up a good point about uh, what is the word? I'm, I'm losing the word, but when we, as a field, when we'll say like they are, oh, non-compliance, right? Where they're not compliant. It's their favorite, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, you know, us are like layering through while they're showing up to session right. every single time, right. right? That to me says they want support, help, and healing, right? Um, so maybe the non-compliance is really based on your approach, like how you're looking at the situation, how you're treating them. It doesn't have anything to do with them not wanting to heal, get better, what have you, right? Um, and and I think that goes in the same lines of like, well, you, like you said, if you're using, well, no, you can't come to treatment because you're still using. And it's like, well, you, it's not going to be an effective treatment if you're coming while you are actually high at that moment, right? And so- sure that's not going to be effective because your, your, your mind state is altered. Um, but you don't have to be in like addictions recovery to start mm-hmm. treatment and get and benefit from it. Um, that's a really great point. Really good point. Yeah. I have a million other offshoots of that. Like, so then also for creating that connection, isn't that the antidote to a lot of, of sufferings, right? So if we're creating that therapeutic connection, I see kind of um, what seems to be an agreement. So it's like, then we could create that that rapport, that connection, mm-hmm. and maybe your protectors won't have to be, um, your firefighters, your protectors won't have to be fighting all the fires, managing what's going on inside, protecting you from this or that feeling or this or that experience as much. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah. right? Exactly. It's It's um, it's worth the effort to try if you're able to, right. And, um, and bringing that to the therapist. So being able to say, you know, I think that sometimes there's this big cloak on our field. There's this big, like, there's some, you know, mystery to it, which is one of the reasons why we have these episodes every week to, you know, peel back some of those layers or move some of that cloak each time. And I think sometimes people, aren't feeling safe enough to disclose that they're still in these active situations Mm -hmm. Um, and, or don't know if they're allowed to, or have already been told before, like you, you know, we can't do anything for you. Maybe not that harshly, hopefully, but we can't do anything for you until you leave that person. until you're out of that relationship until um, X, Y, Z. And so then they don't say, you know, they like talk vaguely or they talk about a past relationship or they talk about something else. And then we were all wondering like, well, what's, what's missing? Something's, something's not working. Something's not helping. And so I think that's really important for people to know, like you, you know, yes, you know, figure out a way to feel safe with your therapist or with whomever you're talking with. Um, but that layer of honesty can be really helpful in saying like, I'm, I know that this is not ideal that I'm still in the situation or, um, but I also don't have another choice right now because we we can't pretend like, you know, whatever the situation is, we can't pretend like it's always easy or even possible to get away right then and there, right? There's like financial barriers, there's transportation, there's all these different barriers. There's life. Again, like we go look at racism, if we look at, you know, transphobia, if we look at gender, like all these different things, you can't escape some of the traumas that you're going to experience just by existing, depending on the body you live in. 
So how dare anyone mm-hmm. say that trauma recovery isn't possible simply because you exist. That's how I look at it. I'm really happy that that's the message that we're putting out there with this this episode. Mm-hmm. And my last point for for today will be around the fact that, you know, if somebody is kind of, I guess, in the one of these like suffering situations, and they do get a chance to connect with us, and they're not super sure if they can have that honesty and transparency. Mm-hmm. One situation is coming to mind where it was very, it made me very grateful that the person felt that they could ask me this. They were like, hey, you know what? Um, I want to tell you something about something that happened at home. But I do remember that you had shared with me your limits of confidentiality. Can you review that with me? And I was like, Hmm. thank you for putting that out there. Clearly, I will say what I can and cannot keep private again. Mm. Um, and I, and I reviewed that with them and they felt that they could tell me what they needed to tell me and, mm-hmm. and so on. But, um, I also just want to put that out there. I'm sure that's a little taboo to be saying, but, um, I know you and I have talked about that, uh, as far as, you know, um, I just appreciated that that person trusted me to say, Hey, let me just ask you this one more time to make sure that I can absolutely feel I can trust you to to tell you this so yeah I'm curious I, I'm grateful that, that 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 patient was able to do that too but I'm curious what do you mean you thought it was taboo right so okay so my thought on that would be like I think sometimes people will just kind of from what I've heard review confidentiality really quickly and not give like a lot of the details of like what they do and do not have to report in a certain state within those ethics and laws. Mm. Um, And so I'm going to validate whatever suffering they've been through. Mm -hmm. um, But there are certain, a couple of things that I would have to report. And so like I kind of outlined those. um, And I don't know that, I guess what I felt was happy was that I don't know that everybody says, here are the things that I do have to say. Mm -hmm. We kind of just do a general sweep for the most part. Gotcha. Well, I don't want to go into too much detail, because, but I'm <laughs> curious. I think the listeners will want to know what are some of the general limits of confidentiality. I think that could be really great in this topic if you're comfortable sharing that. Oh, that's that's a great point. So I I uh, am licensed in Florida and California. Mm-hmm. So I see something along the lines of depending on where I'm at and who I'm working with, I do say something along the lines of, you know, that you know, they can talk with me about anything um, that I do write a really brief sort of summary about what they talk about. They have access to that at any given point mm-hmm. through their, their medical record. They just log into their little portal. They could see everything that was written. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that I'm talking about in those notes is something they know I'm saying, mm-hmm. not putting something crazy in there that's going to scare or surprise them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the only times I would ever come outside of our, our talks and, and share that with somebody would be if uh, there was somebody under the age of 18 now or in the past who had been sexually or physically abused. Mm-hmm. You know, in the state of California, we don't actually report emotional abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, like I said, I certainly validate that that was abuse. Mm-hmm. And I do mention that, you know, with elderly people and people with disabilities, I do 
break our confidentiality and report those. Mm -hmm. And then I'm sure that if somebody tells me not in a joking way, right, like we all have those days, but in a serious way that they do want to kill someone, I do have to break our our privacy and share that. Mm -hmm. And then if somebody were to subpoena me to court, I can't promise that I'd be able to keep everything confidential there. And then when somebody tells me that they want to, they are planning to kill themselves, nine times out of 10, I'm not telling anybody. That's a, a, mm-hmm. a message that I hold gently and kindly and compassionately. And I'm grateful that they told me. But there are a couple of times where I will have to call like a hospital or help them to be hospitalized mm-hmm. and break privacy there. So that's kind of the the confidentiality breakdown. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's really great. I think thank you for sharing that with our listeners. Um, mine is very similar. I think the only thing I add or maybe mm-hmm. say differently or whatever is I let them know um, if I'm going to have to break confidentiality. And right. if it's for something mm-hmm. that um, they can self report. So, in theory, um, self reporting is supposed to be gentler. And when you look, think about the system than someone reporting on you. So that's whether that's, you know, suicidality, whether that's elder abuse, whether that's child abuse, right? The idea is if you kind of turn yourself in or ask for help or support, then it's going to be a better outcome for you and the people involved in the situation. I say that, I couch that in, you know, supposed to be what it's supposed to look like, because unfortunately I have worked in, like again, CPS, DCFS, um, in cases where someone self-reported with support of, of another person. And unfortunately, you know, due to racism, due to gender bias, due to these different things, um, the outcome was probably worse than um, if someone had called on their behalf. So it does vary. But in general, the hope is that if you can make the call together or report, do self-report, then um it's looked at as you're seeking for help, right? Um, so that's the only thing. I tell people that e- even if I have to call, there's no reason why I can't let you know that, right? And so, and we're going to talk about it. And I, and I, even with like suicidality, I say, there's going to be, you're going to have the opportunity to like, um, we're going to walk through this together, right? I'm not going to be like, oh, you said this thing? And okay, I'm calling right now and I'm going to go, no, 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 we're going to, you know, we're going to make sure that you understand what's going on and that it's really the best thing for you at that time. So we're going to make that decision together too. Yeah. Yeah. I really like how you word that too. Um, I, I hope that we haven't thoroughly scared folks and that we <laughs> actually let people know that there is more expansiveness than this old school rule of don't come to therapy if you're still in something tense or toxic or even abusive um, mm-hmm. because we, we do we can kind of open our minds and our hearts and our therapy practices to know that the therapeutic rapport can be so healing and mm-hmm. so corrective for folks. So that's all for me today. Absolutely. And so for me, my my spiel is always, you know, that we want people engaged in this conversation, um, what questions you have, what thoughts are coming up for you when you're listening, when you're watching this. So please feel free to leave comments on YouTube. Uh, tag us on Instagram at Breaking the Couch. You can check out our website, breakingthecouch.com. And on there, there's a, a little form you could fill out. You could be totally anonymous or you can let us know your name. Um, leave us a comment. And you can also leave voicemails for people who 
uh, that's still a thing that people select to do, but you can leave a voicemail and then we can actually, if you wanted, we can put you on the podcast. We can, we can add your question directly in with your voice and you can kind of hear yourself and share that with, you know, family, friends, whomever you want to share that with, but get engaged, um, follow us on the different platforms, make sure you subscribe so you get those alerts. And there's a bookshop. So anytime we uh, mention a book in our podcast, we add it to the bookshop. And that bookshop helps with two things. It helps support local bookstores um, because we know that there's some bigger companies that have uh, unfortunately caused little smaller stores to go out of business. And so we're trying to help some of those local bookstores. But then also we get a really small percentage of books that are sold through our bookshop, which really helps us do these podcast episodes because, you know, it takes time and money to produce these things. And um, we just want to be able to continue doing that. Feel free to follow us on those platforms. And we're really looking forward to talking and seeing you all soon. If you are looking for a therapist for yourself or your child, you can visit our websites, playfullypsych.com or softheartpsychology.com. We appreciate you joining us this week and can't wait till there's another opportunity to jump on the couch with you next week.